This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's Friday. Feels like Friday today. It's one of those Fridays that actually feels like a Friday. Nothing worse than another day that you think is a Friday. You ever have that, John? You wake up, and it feels like a Friday, but then you realize it's a Tuesday. <laughs> You've still got some heavy lifting to do through the week. You ever get twisted up like that, pal? It's the worst. John Hicks in the house, technical producer of the show. In just a second, Sapria Devetti will join us. And then a Real Talk roundtable. I've been looking forward to this for a while, although we're going to do some heavy lifting. To be honest with you, uh, it's a conversation that we've teed up on the show before, but this continues. Uh, this persists as an issue, a very real issue, an issue requiring our immediate attention as Canadians. Women in journalism in particular and working in politics are facing uh, coordinated attacks, essentially, uh, online threats, harassment. It's brutal. We're going to talk to three of the people that have been quite open about the messages that they've been receiving, uh, their conversations with law enforcement. We're going to get into it in just about a half an hour's time with Nora Loretto, Erica Eiffel, and Kristen Rayworth. That's our Real Talk Roundtable today. And uh, as mentioned, Sapria Devetti joins us in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about a few things, uh, including a couple of the conservative leadership candidates, the federal ones, uh, Scott Aitchison in particular, condemning Dr. Leslin Lewis's email. Have you heard about this? Uh, the Nuremberg email uh, talking about the COVID vaccine. He calls it a dog whistle. This with uh, less and less time until these conservative party members are going to be voting on who's taking their party forward, who's moving it forward. Scott Aitchison, no doubt Jean Charest, let alone Dr. Leslie Lewis, Roman Baber, all trying to get everybody's attention, trying to get people an idea of what the conservative party would look like under their leadership. Is it too late? Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to use say that I'm a pessimist about this because that sort of implies a, 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 it just to me. I feel like we've been kind of sticking a fork in this leadership race for about a month now. I feel like we've been declaring it done for about a month now. And I don't know if it's, to be honest with you, been fair to the other campaigns, uh, in particular, probably the Jean Charest campaign. Although I've been hearing from more and more of my personal friends that have said they've been really impressed with HSM, but they, these campaigns just haven't found the traction that Polyevs have. And so that's, of course, coming down to the wire. It's a story that we're following. I also want to ask Sapria in just a second about the shade that was being thrown from the official White House Twitter account yesterday. I don't know. Were you paying attention to this at all? John, was this something that was on your radar? Did you see this? This was amazing. Uh, this is at White House. This is the official Twitter account of this is great. the White House. This isn't somebody parodying the White House or pretending to be speaking on behalf of the White House or the Joe Biden administration. This is the official White House Twitter account with seven and a half million followers. And they were honing in or focusing in on, in particular, Republican politicians that have been very critical about the announcement from U.S. President Joe Biden that we talked about yesterday with Elamine Abdul who That was an amazing uh, conversation. Uh, Elamine comes in, mm -hmm. Abdul Mahmoud, and he says, he, says, uh, I was, he says, I was 12 years old when I moved to Canada as an immigrant with my family. He says, I had to, to, to scale up and figure out the culture quickly and then prepare for post-secondary. He takes out, and I don't think his story is, is, is unusual by any stretch. This is the story of thousands, if not millions, of Canadians over the years, about $45,000 in student loans. And after graduation, it takes him the better part of his young adult life, 10 years, to pay off that student loan. He says, think of all the other things 
that we could have done participating in the economy, participating in home ownership, what have you, had those loans been forgiven or had there been a better way for post-secondary students in Canada to pay those tuition costs. Now, not everybody would feel the way that Elamine does. And, and we know that in particular, number one, common sense. And number two, because when we posted a clip of him talking about student loan forgiveness, and in his estimation, how it makes sense for it to be a political talking point for the federal NDP, for Jagmeet Singh and his team, we heard from some of you that just rolled your eyes. These are the folks that, that say, listen, I paid off my loans. I don't know why these students or today's students shouldn't have to pay off theirs. Not everybody agrees with it. You know, so to bring this back stateside, you've, you've got people like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I'll roll the clip when I'm talking to Sapria in just a second. They're talking about it's completely unfair to forgive debts. It's, com- it's, it's ludicrous. It's unfair. It doesn't make sense. It's the wrong move for the feds or whomever else to say your debt is completely forgiven. Well, the White House Twitter account's coming out and calling these people to the carpet with these inconvenient things called facts. Uh, the White House Twitter account is talking about how, for example, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene had $183,504 worth of loans forgiven. The White House <laughs> Twitter account yesterday throwing pure shade and uh doing an amazing job with it we've been learning a little bit more in in, into the afternoon and into the evening people are going who is this person who's this staffer that's coming up with this strategy like every once in a while on social media maybe another example yesterday not quite as uh high profile or prominent but still Mm -hmm. trending yesterday this wendy's brand reinvention how cool (laughs) was this more the, shade. The Wendy's. Speaking of shade. <laughs> the Wendy's burger brand uh, tweeting out a photo. <clears throat> They've redone, you know, Wendy's classic look with the red hair, right? Well, obviously now she's rocking the gray. And says Wendy's, like the Wendy's, like probably second only to, well, of course, Dairy Queen. We love Dairy Queen, don't we? Let's be honest. But McDonald's, Wendy's, when you talk burger brands in the United States, when you talk burger brands in North America, this is among the biggest. They say because a star is a star, regardless of hair color, hashtag Lisa Laflamme, hashtag new profile pic. So the Wendy's Twitter account, uh, pretty amazing at what they're doing yesterday as well. These are social media strategies that pay off. Why? Because we're talking about them today. And we got some insight. Did you see this this relatively young staffer that's new on the team at the White House? A lot of people who deserve raises today in the news. I think so. <laughs> All these social media coordinators. You know what I was thinking about, too, though, <laughs> with, with these these strategists and these social and, and typically, I mean, you can't just say this blanket, mm. but typically the social media strategist, the social media side of a business is typically like the younger dare I say, a little bit savvier or maybe a little bit more sort of like pop culture it's relevant. Dare I say, mid-20s, it's, late it's, 20s. It's like yeah. pretty standard. Yeah. Like you don't typically have like the 58, no offense to the 58-year-olds, it's just the number that's resonated. <laughs> maybe in another 20 Lisa years. Lisa LaFlamme, but... 58 years old, Supriya mm-hmm. Devetti and I on this week of seriously 58 shades of gray, but you don't have the folks in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s typically running your social media. You've no. got like the 20 and early 30-year-olds, right? But here's the thing. It, it you you put yourself out there with something like that. Like you really stretch your neck out with some of these strategies and when they work, it's brilliant. But mm-hmm. when they don't work and you're doing them on behalf of a huge brand, it's a bit of a different story, right? Yeah. But that one hit. I wonder if there's like bonuses. Like we should have, like when you get a big hit like that. Like, like if you get a million likes. Yeah, or when you hit something right on the head and it's just like your idea, you should, you should get a bonus. Uh, I like that idea. Yeah. All right, Sapria's coming up in just a second. You know, we talk about this Real Talk Roundtable, and while we're not officially unveiling anything right now, 
I want to let you know that we've talked to you about this new studio we're moving into next month, and oh, and uh, we have this. It's not round. We'll continue to host round tables from our rectangular table. <laughs> But this thing is absolutely stunning. We're super excited about this. If you're watching us on YouTube, this is the first look at it. We're not going to show you the whole table. We want to unveil it in spectacular fashion. But this is just a bit of a sneak peek. Why am I showing this to you right now? Because this table is put together by our amazing friends at Urban Timber. We're so proud to be partnering with them this Saturday. If you live in the Metro Edmonton region from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Urban Timber's new showroom uh, this is on uh, 156th Street, 112th Avenue. It's open from 10 to 4, jam-packed with a variety of their custom tables, including boxcar, live edge, extension tables. And yes, it's going to be there. The very first sneak peek of Real Talk's new studio table. If you're having trouble finding the perfect furniture piece, they will custom make it to your specs and sizing. That's exactly what they did for us. It's literally a one-off piece just for your home. They have Canada's largest selection of hand-hewn white oak mantles averaging 200 years old. And the owner's daughter, Charlie May, she's going to be there. Darren and Leanne will be there, but Charlie May is going to be running a lemonade stand in support of the Stollery Children's Hospital on Saturday. So we're really looking forward to that. One other charitable initiative we want to tell you about before we get to Sapria Devedia. We've been talking to you about this amazing dream home, a chance to essentially change your life by buying the ticket that's going to claim that $2.2 million dream home on Hayes Ridge Boulevard. We're talking 5,400 square feet, four bedrooms, five bathrooms, fully furnished, three-car garage, botanical room, gym. I mean, everything you would expect in, can I use the word, mansion? You get your tickets online at covenantfoundationlottery.ca or you can call 1-888-944-2774. For more than 160 years, Covenant Health has made a huge difference for patients and their loved ones. And for the last 30 years, that's been in part through the Covenant Foundation Lottery. You can support it today at covenantfoundationlottery.ca. We went and saw it. You went and saw the dream home. two blocks from where we live right now. And what do you think? What does 2.2 mil get you on Hayes Ridge Boulevard? My wife's like, so we're exempt from the. I don't think you can win. I think it would be. I think it would be a bad look if you won it. It is really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing, 5,400 square feet. Right near uh, Yager Ridge, you probably know. Yeah, yeah. golf guy. Beautiful part of town. Sapria Devetti is, uh, of course, uh, our favorite Friday tradition. She joins us, a co-host of Seriously. You see her in Power and Politics and a whole bunch. She's always writing in all the high-profile papers and publications. My friend, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, mentioned episode five of Seriously out earlier this week. It's been so exciting to see that gain some traction. And that it's developing a bit of a new audience. It's a show where we promise everybody in less than half an hour, every Wednesday, we're going to cut through the noise and make sense of the nation's top stories. We're having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, we really are. Um, and I, you know, we, we wrapped that and it was interesting in the last episode because you and I were having this conversation about Lisa Laflamme prior to recording and we were like, oh, we were off for a week. So will the story still have legs? Like we were discussing it and yep, guess what? It does. <laughs> um, and it literally is the story that won't really go away. And you were mentioning the Wendy's thing off the top and, it, you know, <laughs> I have a slightly different take um, about yeah. Wendy's thing because I, 
yeah, that's when you're going to get in on it, like almost into the end of the second week of this thing. It just goes to show, I think, how many layers of approval that one tweet had to go through um, and how long it took them to put that up. But yeah, uh, you're I guess totally right. Better late than never, I guess. Um, but yeah, now uh, everyone's just dunking on Bell. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 one of those things where I, I feel like they talk about the size of corporations or the size of a staff or maybe even just the size of a comms staff. Uh, if you're a, a, you know, a ma and pa owned independent hamburger joint, you can say whatever you want from yeah. your burger Twitter account five minutes after something happens. But if you're running Wendy's account, it takes 10 days. We now know. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. the uh, corporate turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> Tweet I, approval. <laughs> hey, th this White House account yesterday, absolutely hilarious. Um, Johnny, why don't we roll the clip here? So this is Congresswoman, obviously a Republican, to say the least. Marjorie, Republicans, normal, reasonable Republicans are going to go, what's that supposed to mean? You know exactly what I mean. Uh, here's Marjorie Taylor Greene on the record just a short time ago. But for, for our government just to say, you know, okay, well, your debt is completely forgiven. Obviously, they have an agenda for that. They need votes in November. So the timing is a pure coincidence there as well. But it's completely unfair. And taxpayers all over the country, taxpayers that never took out a student loan, taxpayers that pay their bills and, and, and you know, maybe even never went to college or just hardworking people, they shouldn't have to pay off the great big student loan debt for, for some college student that piled up massive debt going to some Ivy League school. That's not fair. Okay. So you've got that. And then you've got the seven and a half million follower blue check mark White House account pointing out the inconvenient truth that Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene had more than $183,000 in the, this paycheck protection program, the PP triple P loans forgiven. And then it goes on for context for people that didn't see it to take on Congressman Vern Buchanan, who is saying the same things on Fox, talking about the Dems push for a student loan bailout. They say this Congressman Buchanan had over $2.3 million in loans forgiven. What about Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, over $1.4 million in loans forgiven? It's same thing for Congressman Kevin Hearn and Congressman Mike Kelly and Congressman Matt Gates, And the list goes on. How big of an own was this? I mean, this is as big as a own as you can get. And it was interesting because initially a lot of these, um, you know, PPP loans that were out there, it was just like regular Twitter users that were, you know, a, like responding to a lot of these politicians or some of the more right-leaning commentators in the U.S. being like, this you? And screenshotting their their PPP loan, their PPP loan uh, forgiveness. Um, and then, you know, the White House clearly picked up on that and, uh, you know, maximized the, the full effectiveness of it. But here's the thing with like embarrassing somebody or pointing out their hypocrisy is that in order for it to work, the person on the receiving end of it has to have the capability or the capacity to actually feel embarrassed or shame. Um, and I don't know if any of these uh, politicians that are getting, you know, owned in the uh, in the quote tweets by by the White House are going to feel that and they do tend to live in their own sort of, you know, information bubbles and reality. And so I don't know if this is going to penetrate um, as far as I think the White House would have hoped. Mm. What do you think? I, we talked to Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud yesterday about student loan forgiveness and student debt forgiveness. And he was making some interesting points about Jagmeet Singh's shopping list. And he said he was surprised that it hadn't been longer in the first few months or the first several months since the liberals and the NDP reached that deal, he said that essentially to paraphrase 
he thinks that student loan forgiveness or, or at least post-secondary assistance with funding is a no-brainer. He says he thinks it could be politically palatable. It's something he thinks that they could gain some ground on. For context, people that didn't hear it yesterday, in the United States, Americans earning less than one hundred and twenty-five grand a year could see up to $10,000 of their loans forgiven. What's your take on this? It's not something that there's, there's been really serious or at least lingering conversation about in Canada. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And Alamine's a smart guy, and everyone should write uh, should should read everything he writes, including his uh, latest BuzzFeed article as well as his uh, his memoir, Son of Elsewhere. Very good. So um, good. And I think he he makes a good point. But what I would say is that in terms of like how it's managed in Canada, I mean, a big chunk of that, um, the majority, if not all of it, is like on the provinces, is it not? Like I, I know, like when I was in university, my entire post secondary education was done within Quebec. Um, and Quebec tends to have much cheaper tuition um, than a good chunk of the rest of the country. And I think that the reason why I was able to sort of, you know, I've mentioned this before, we talked about it on seriously, that we're both the kids of physicians and neither of us ended up going to med school. But, and I said, I basically only went to law school because I needed something, you know, quote unquote, respectable to do um, when I told my dad I didn't want to go to med school. And the reason why I was able to do that is because tuition was so cheap, right? Like, I don't think I would have been able to do that if I was in Ontario and I was going to be paying Ontario law school tuition fees. Um, so Elamine does make a good point. And there is something to be said more generally, I think, about the NDP under uh, Jagmeet Singh, not honing in on some of the more meteor, you know, affordability issues um, and that it should be very comfortable territory for the NDP um, and traditionally has been. And they seem to be at least ceding some of that ground currently to, um, you know, Pierre Polyev um, and the Conservative Party. And so it'll be really interesting to see once the fall hits and the House resumes and, you know, or back into the into question period, uh, if uh, Jagmeet gets another spring in his step um, mm. and starts really, you know, going at uh, some of these uh, affordability issues a little bit harder. Yeah. You wonder if like federal action on something like post-secondary funding could come in the form of like a deferred tax credit or, yeah. or something. I don't know. But, you know, one of the things I love, uh, not just about seriously, and we're, we're certainly pumping that podcast tires right now. Uh, <laughs> we're grateful for everybody that's sub subscribing and, and that's rating it and reviewing it and sharing it and everything else. But one of the things I love about it is kind of the theme, which is is more obvious and spelled out on that show than it is implied on this one. But this is a chance for for a Western Canadian to talk to an Eastern Canadian and ask each other about what's going on in our neck of the woods. And I want to ask you about masking policy in Ontario schools in a second, by the way. But, you know, we take a look at what's happening with post-secondary funding in Alberta right now. Alberta is running a surplus budget at, at the moment. That's what it looks like, right? Like Alberta's financial yeah. picture is a lot rosier than it was a year ago or two years ago, but at the same time, tuition caps have been lifted and post-secondary funding is being slashed. And so it's an interesting narrative. I guess it, there, a lot of people would read into this what the government's priorities are. I also can't help but wonder what message it sends, not just to post-secondary students in Alberta or would-be students, but also students across the rest of the country. We talk a lot about our Alberta advantage. You know, Jason Kenney's on his way out, right? He resigned, as people know, quite some time ago, and he's soon going to be vacating the premier's office. And a lion's share of his efforts right now are on these recruitment videos. Have you seen them? Like, hey, yeah. it's Jason calling and all these kind of like weird things that nobody would ever believe uh, about like move to Alberta. Here's why everybody's moving to Alberta. Two of the big things, like you want to move here, raise your family here. We want to attract young talent. We're lifting tuition caps and cutting research and university funding. I, I don't know. It's a tough message to sell. 
Well, yeah, especially against the backdrop of, uh, you know, a UCP leadership race where a good chunk of them are like, should we stay in Canada? Maybe we shouldn't stay in Canada. Do we need to follow laws? Uh, maybe we don't need to follow laws we don't like. Like, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it, it, Quebec tends to do the same sort of thing um, in, 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 in which, you know, this sort of Al- Burton exceptionalism or Quebec exceptionalism, I think that it's it's a very interesting sort of uh, mirror thinking um, from from both of our, our home provinces. Um, but yeah, to your point about Alberta, I mean, I don't know anyone within my own circle who's like rushing to move there um, under the current conditions. But uh-huh. you know that could say more about my own circle than I think um, the actual. Uh, advantages that Alberta does have because um, there are plenty. Jillian's watching and we know she's been such a great friend of the show. Uh, she's in our live chat a lot of the morning. She's also been on the show. Um, she grew up, she's a Montrealer. She lives in Alberta now. She says, this, this is a bit of a, a bit of shade thrown toward Alberta. I hate to read, but she says U of A, University of Alberta, shouldn't cost more than McGill. Sorry. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, no kidding. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and then Jill makes an interesting point as well in our live chat on YouTube. He says, considering we have labor mobility in Canada, maybe post secondary education should be a federal domain instead of provincial. Mm-hmm. I mean, we once we start talking about education and health and funding and jurisdiction, I mean that would be a I hate to use an American phrase, but that could be civil war uh, if we start messing around with that. But, hey, if we're going to open all that up, that's what Alberta's been looking to do for a while. Let's talk about what's going on in, in Ontario right now. You're, the, you're, you're the, the parent of a of a young child, not yet a student, I don't think, attending school. But this this uh, Ontario's science advisory table, Sapria, says it won't make a formal recommendation on whether or not it'll reintroduce mandatory masking in, stu- in schools. It says there's a lack of consensus on the topic. I, I'm sure you're following this. Yeah, I am. So there are a couple of new little nuggets. So Bruce Arthur over at the Star um, had a scoop last night in which he basically said that, according to his sources and documents that the Star had seen, it was very likely that the uh, science advisory uh, table or or the science table was going to end up being dissolved. Um, And then this morning that was confirmed uh, by the table themselves that they're going to dissolve as of, I think, September 6th. And so, you know, what the table had come up with in terms of their latest report or their briefs was exactly what you said, that there was no real consensus in terms of what the metrics would be to reintroduce uh, mask wearing. Um, And the reasoning being that they weren't exactly able to isolate mask wearing as reducing transmission in and of itself. And so the quote here, and I'm going to read it exactly from what they'd said was studies have shown that schools with mask mandates, along with other health and safety measures have been associated with a lower incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection compared to schools without mask mandates. This supports that masking along with other measures may reduce transmission within schools, but the isolated effect of masking is difficult to determine. And it's like, well, duh, like obviously the the isolating mask wearing in and of itself as like the sole thing to have reduced transmission is going to be difficult to assess in terms of the way that they're trying to work out that assessment. But like, I think most reasonable people, reasonable people would conclude that if you're wearing a mask, particularly a higher quality mask, like an N95 or something, it, of course it, it reduces transmission. Um, there's no real, I, I don't, I didn't think there was any much of a debate on that. And I understand not getting consensus that I understand parents being, you know, not into mask mandates for their kids and thinking it should be, uh, you know, something that they decide for in within their own families for themselves. Um, but it's just like, what are we doing in the fall? Like, what are we going to do? We have a healthcare system that is effectively, you know, collapsed. It's in crisis. We're going to be dealing with a resurgence of, or at least an uptick in transmission 
Um, we don't have the greatest rates in terms of boosters. Um, and we're also going to be dealing with the flu season and whatever else, uh, that nature tends to throw at us. So it's like, in my opinion, we should be doing whatever we can to keep kids in school. And if that is, um, making sure that they're wearing masks, then why not do it? Um, because the alternative and in Ontario, you know, kids were kept out of school, like I, 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 for sure the longest in North America and probably most other Western jurisdictions as well. And it's like, well, we, nobody wants that again. Mm. So what are we doing? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be interested to see. I was uh, talking to a, I was hosting a golf tournament last night, a, a fundraiser for uh, child and adolescent mental health, a great group called the CASA foundation that operates here in Alberta. And they were talking about the CEO is up Bonnie Blakely. She's talking about the, obviously the strain that, that the pandemics had and associated factors on, mental health supports for young people. Long story short, they had a lot of their like psychiatric nurses and counselors there. I mean, these are people that are doing amazing work, literally saving young lives. And I talked to this one ER nurse and I asked her, I said, are things kind of easing up for you in the context of like COVID and the strain on the system and burnout and all that kind of stuff? And she goes, well, you know, she goes, yeah, like maybe like a little bit, anecdotally, maybe a little bit. She goes, of course, we have like all these delayed or deferred surgeries and all the stuff. People haven't been having their diagnostic exams. And so we don't know what's coming. They kind of are bracing themselves for the second wave. But she goes, and then like the fall and everyone kind of nods like, yeah, the fall, like everyone, I don't know, the kids are going to be going back to schools. We just, we don't know. Uh, But I'll also say looking around through the summer, I mean, people have been gathering in large groups as well. Sure, it's outdoors for the most part, but but I will be curious to see if this, you know, what this return to school does for the numbers. We take a look at outbreaks. uh, I mean, we'll even know the numbers. That's the other thing is that if you're dismantling, right, if you're dismantling all these science tables and our access to data, then like, how are we even how are parents even supposed to make their own assessment if you don't have the tools at your disposal to be able to come to an informed decision yeah no that's such a fair point that's that's like the most important point um hey to to bring this kind of full circle here's a tweet i only saw this yesterday the tweet's more than two years old but i only saw it yesterday from the the new jersey governor's account and, and why this is first of all it's a great tweet mask not what your country can do for you mask what you can do for your country you know who wrote that that's Megan Coyne wrote that two years ago, and that's the new staffer running the White House Twitter account right now. Oh. That was the, She was the author of all of that shade yesterday, and that was her two years ago. I thought that that was a pretty amazing way to, to work that JFK quote. Hey, I know you have to go, uh, and so do we. We've got a roundtable coming up here in just a couple of minutes, but let me ask you quickly. Just you know, I, I feel I lamented earlier in the show. I want to I want to sort of hold my own feet to the fire. I probably haven't given enough attention to Scott Aitchison's federal conservative leadership campaign. Uh, a lot of people I know that are reasonable and intelligent have actually picked him as their vote. They say that this guy has that kind of prime ministerial quality. He comes across as reasonable, competent, empathetic, and the like. Um, he's calling out Dr. Leslin Lewis about her essentially Nuremberg, like Holocaust comparisons with the vaccine. I wanted to ask you about this before we wrap for the weekend. Uh, so look, I, I mean, Dr. Leslin Lewis has been, you know, quite out there with respect to endorsing a number of conspiracy theories or like just asking questions and, you know, and this is, I guess, no different. So what she does have in terms of a defense is like plausible deniability or the ability to deflect some of that criticism because she doesn't actually come out and specifically say that the COVID vaccine is what is in fact violating the Nuremberg principles. The examples that she does cite in her blog post 
are, you know, pretty undisputed horrific um, points in our history uh, in terms of how we've treated uh, indigenous and black people. And so she is right to point out that we have done all sorts of terrible things in the past um, and the groups that have felt that the most are marginalized groups, especially, you know, indigenous and, 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 and black people. But Dr. Lewis is not dumb. She's very smart. Um, she's not a newbie to politics. And so she clearly knew what she was doing uh, when she was, you know, citing the Nuremberg principles, um, because she has said in the past that a lot of the questions that she gets are from folks that are worried about the vaccines. And she has to know that this was going to be an incredibly effective dog whistle for some of the more rabid um, anti-vaxxers out there. And as any number of doctors or healthcare workers would be able to tell you, I mean, they get all sorts of hate mails saying that, you know, they're going to be subject to trial once this is all over because they violated those principles, et cetera, et cetera. So like Scott Aitchison was right to call her out and right to point out that, you know, this is beyond the pale and that she should apologize. Um, but you know, the fact that she didn't specifically cite it gives her at least a little bit of, you know, wiggle room to say, um, I didn't actually say that. Mm. So what's the coolest thing you're doing this weekend? Uh, like, do you want my honest answer? Yeah. I'm reorganizing my closet. <laughs> so am I. Love it. Are you really? I really am. Okay. I really yeah. am. I'm being I'm, I'm being prompted to do it by something. This is actually making my stomach feel sick. Uh, I didn't plan on talking about this or divulging this publicly, but maybe you can feel my pain. Maybe not, Sapria. When when our little guy Wyatt turned, when he was born in 2015, uh, which also happened to be Connor McDavid's rookie year. And uh, <laughs> so for his first birthday, I bought him the Connor McDavid Young Guns rookie card. Oh, nice. And then I was going to give it to him when he turns 18, right? And um, and I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> and the guy oh. who cuts the guy who cuts my hair is a huge Khaled. He's an amazing guy, and he and he and he and he's like a huge collector. And he knows I have this McDavid. And he goes, "Hey, bro." He goes, "You see a McDavid rookie?" He goes, "You see what they're?" He's, he always shows me on the phone what they're priced at. He goes, "They're like averaging 1,500, right?" He goes, "One just sold for four grand." He goes, "Hey, bro. Hey, he's going to give me the high five. I'm like, Khaled, I'm going to puke. I can't find it." <laughs> and so I'm pulling apart my whole closet this weekend in search of this fucking piece of cardboard. <laughs> Godspeed, little doodle. Good luck to you. Thanks, um, buddy. Uh, yeah. We'll talk to you next Wednesday for Seriously, and we'll talk to you in a week right back here on Real Talk, Sapria. It's always our total pleasure. Sounds good. Talk soon, Ryan. Yeah, that's Sapria Devetti. Uh, you can, of course, check out Seriously and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts at seriouslypod.com. And if you prefer to watch, you can find us on YouTube, too. Yeah. That podcast is produced by the intrepid John Hicks. <laughs> Who's also getting in. That's weird. We're all doing closet stuff this weekend oh listen to us. i How just went to we ikea and bought new i came into my closet the other day and i had like these hanging like installed drilled in holders two of them on the ground all my suits all my shirts are just <laughs> we got our work cut out for us we yeah. feel like i feel like will ferrell in old school was he talking about like we're gonna go to where were they going like uh, streaking <laughs> by the moon tower <laughs>
No, he's like, I don't know. We're going to go to Home Depot or something, maybe look mm-hmm. at some wallpaper. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have time. Yeah. I don't know. There's just so much going on, these exciting lives that we lead. Hey, if you've got some free time coming up this weekend and you happen to live in our neck of the woods, if you live near Metro Edmonton, uh, our friends at Friesen Brothers want to invite you to participate in and support their Edmonton Food Bank Drive and Barbecue. That's happening tomorrow, Saturday, August 27th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can get a smoky and a pop if you make a donation, monetary or a food item. They're aiming to fill the Edmonton's food bank truck, and the most needed items all relate to back to school. Healthy school snacks, things like real juice boxes, granola bars, fruit cups. You want to help out the families that are looking for baby formula? If you haven't bought baby formula, you would you would never guess how expensive it is. An amazing donation for young families that have welcomed a new member. The Edmonton Food Bank Drive and Barbecue goes at Friesen Brothers South Edmonton Rabbit Hill location this Saturday from 10 to 5. Our friends at Apex Automation have put out a call. They've been doing it for about a month now here on Real Talk to the most talented engineers in Canada. Are you sick and tired of what you're doing at work? Are you fed up with your company? You feel like there's a ceiling above you? You feel like your potential's capped? Go to apexautomation.ca today. They're so proud of how they're growing their team based on their people. They're giving their staff and their clients back their time, providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. This could be your future at apexautomation.ca. Now, if there's maybe a step between now and there... This is where Athabasca University comes into the mix. It's Canada's online university. That's why tens of thousands of Canadians attend virtually, studying programs and courses that offer the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. You can check out their research opportunities. You can check out the different faculties. Get a sense of what the admissions process looks like by visiting AthabascaU.ca today. And when we ask you to participate in our show, in the conversation, we drive you to our hashtag, RealTalkRJ. That's powered by the team at Park Power. Now, we know if you're like the average Canadian, you're feeling a bit of a financial pinch right now. I mean, John and I have even been talking about things in our own lives that are getting more expensive. Every time we do, you let us know what's more expensive for you. Why not take five minutes today and compare the rates of what you're paying for electricity, natural gas, and internet? You can easily switch your business over to Park Power, and the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill at parkpower.ca. Well, this has been uh, an absolutely brutal reality, to speak frankly. Uh, Canadians, I think, are, are aghast for the most part. Anybody that's paying attention online, in particular on Twitter, that what appears to be a coordinated campaign of hate, of threats, of violence, of misogyny, racism, sexism. I mean, essentially targeting women, in particular women of color, that are working in the fields of, but not limited to, journalism and politics. Three of the people that have been very open about their own journeys here, including receiving some of these messages, having conversations with police, and working with their colleagues to address this in meaningful fashion, are forming our Real Talk Roundtable today. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Nora Loretto. This is her Real Talk debut. She's the author of a new book, Spin Doctors, and she's the co-host of the popular Sandy and Nora Talk Politics podcast. Uh, Kristen Rayworth is a sexual violence survivor and an advocate. She's currently working as a political staffer. And Erica Eiffel is an economist. She's host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast, and she's the founder of Not In My Color. 
Eric, I should also point out that you form half of our uh, what are we called? The unofficial opposition roundtable. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a different story for a different day. Welcome I, back. I, I love shout out to Mo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, yeah. Last time you were on the show, we, we had a lot of fun talking politics. And, and, yeah. and, I, and I don't know if I say the subject matter was was a little more light or not because we sunk our teeth into some stuff. But it was, it was a lot less personal. All three of yes. you that are joining us here this morning have been facing personal attacks. And Erica, I've decided, and, and, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong or if you want to take this in a different direction. I didn't think it was smart to read any of the stuff that you've been posting, the stuff you've been receiving this week. It is nothing short of absolutely horrific. Can you bring our audience up to speed? Oh, about this. Okay, so about, I think on Canada Day, um, I received an email um, along with, um Saba Itazaz and um uh another journalist of color. So, you know, I just look usually when these things happen, like I've I've faced, you know, hate over the years. These things happen, I just look for keywords. Usually the N-word and the B word. That's what I look for. Mm. And then I'm like, oh, this is hate. Bye. I have edits to do. Like I didn't have time, right? But Fast forward a few weeks and it becomes a more coordinated, sinister email that included um, death threats, gang rape threats in language of a, a somewhat progressive nature. And that's what's disturbing is that their use of language and their manipulation and perversion of the language of activism, the language of equity, um, to really to turn it on its head and use it to, um, I think I think it was, who was, it was a senator who was on your show earlier? Paula Simons. Paula Simons, Paula Simons. Yeah. yeah. Yes, who said it's emotional terrorism. And that's what they do. They use this language and they use... Um, our connections with each other and what we um, what we write and what we talk about and what we actually strive for and um, use it, manipulate it and turn it against us and abuse us with it. Nora, so, sorry, yeah. sorry, Erica, I didn't mean to step on your toes there. No problem. Uh, Nora, you're sitting for people that are going to listen to the podcast. Uh, I, I want to let them. You're sitting. You're sitting here, and you are nodding, de demonstrably nodding to everything that Erica's saying. Why is this resonating with you so directly? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's an Italian thing to like yeah. speak with my body, so <laughs> I, I can't help myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have been I've been receiving threats my for a long time, pretty much my whole adult life. The first time I received credible threats, I was 20, and we were we were confronting. Uh, organized white supremacists on campus at Ryerson, formerly Ryerson University, which is now Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, as a writer, I have received, I mean, yeah, like whatever you can imagine, I have received. And this whole last round of threats in the summer, I've I've been very much outside of it, which is great, which also speaks to the nature that it is like coordinated and they target people for very specific reasons. Um, though I, I did receive one of these very long uh, creative writing threats. And as Erica says, it is very unsettling. I mean, in this case, like I received one and I didn't share, usually I share all my threats. This one I didn't share because it was so weird that this guy created a fantasy MMA match where I was fighting all of these people that he hated and they were all CC'd on this, on this email. 
And it's just like, like, is this, is this fanfic? Like what, what, it, what are you doing? Why, who, 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 what kind of person sits down at three 30 in the morning and is like, I'm going to live out my MMA fantasy with all of these violent like images and send them to these strangers for, I'm not sure what purpose. Um, so yes, I'm very, I, 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 I receive these kinds of messages. I write a lot about, um, online hate as well. Mm. And one thing that, um, has always been very difficult when you write about online hate is, um, you know, you have to capture political moments and and where where politics are and where people are orienting around politics. And that's sometimes very difficult because having that broader conversation is not something that mainstream media is prepared for. And instead, they focus very much on the individual impact and the individual threats, which is like for the individual, I mean, that that's their that's their world. That's those are their threats. They should be doing literally whatever they want with those threats. But when it, when you step out and you look at the the role of mainstream media uh, in this whole world, not just in how we deal with threats, but also with how we arrange society and how we're pushing people to the brink in different ways, of course it's going to manifest itself in these threats. And we have to like be clear, you know, of course racialized women, women in general, targeted the most. But like you can be the most granola boring white guy and also receive some pretty horrible threats too, because it's kind of a, a sign of where society is at right now. People are really, really cracking. And the pandemic obviously plays a massive role, massive, massive, massive role in this. Like, uh, oh man, I, I, this round table could be six hours. I promise it won't be though. Uh, but Nora, I want to say like you, uh, in, in one of your more recent episodes uh, of Sandy and Nora, you talk about how you believe uh, in your estimation, you don't think that Canadian media right now is capable of speaking truth to power. It's a bit of a different context, uh, but I do want us to, to put, mainstream media so to speak and independent media as well for that matter um let, let, let's look in the mirror too today i want us to put that under the microscope and i want us to talk about law enforcement and investigations and we'll circle back on that but Kristen, uh nora just says you know what kind of a person does this and that's kind of what everybody's asking right now is is who is this person who are these people that is put together i i hate to almost further the phrase that was used earlier this week but it was contained in the document a hit list it's a hit list that was widely circulated this week specifically naming women working in media and politics in canada and kristen i know that this has been landing in your own backyard yeah so i mean i'm on the list um and we i mean we all are uh, I found out, I guess it would be to about two weeks ago, because I was in an email um, sent to another journalist in which I was threatened to be gutted. And then it has just gotten progressively uh, worse since that happened. Um, and I, Nora published a great piece this morning about this and about talking about online hate and online harassment. And I think that when we talk about who these people are and what's happening is that we, we need to go back to the root of it, which is what is making people become extremists online and what is building up to this? Because all of us, like there's about a group of, I don't know, like 10 of us who have gone through this, who are consistently named in each other's threatening emails. Like it's a weird bond that we've all kind of developed because we consistently have to share, oh, we got, I got another one or this happened to me or this is happening to me. And it's the same language. It's the same email address for a lot of us that it's being sent to. But, you know, when we can we can hope that the police can do something, the police have been uh, at least in Edmonton, they've been quite responsive to us, but they've also let us know that this is a long process and they probably will not be able to identify who it is, um, at least not for quite some time. So 
in the interim, we also have to talk about how do we stop this from happening to begin with? And how do we identify and address the extremism that is occurring online, mainly for young white males and trying to find a way to, to solution that? Because until we do these, this, this, these threats will never stop. So let's have that conversation. And I want to sort of like put the ball into play and then get out of the way. We'll treat it like we're having coffees or beers or wine or whatever. Um, Erica, maybe to you first, like as a society, we'll get a lot of engaged audience members, I guarantee it, who will listen to this, who, who, will, who, who will connect with this story. Perhaps they've faced threats or perhaps they're simply appalled. We've got a letter coming up in Trash Talk after we wrap up this segment that touches exactly on this from a guy that's basically saying enough is enough. So for the audience member or the average Canadian that's listening to this that says, so what needs to happen here? The obvious ones are file a police report, speak to your employer, require media conglomerates to do more here. But but Erica, let's talk about uh, about like boots on the ground type stuff for the average everyday person. How do we respond to this? Well, I honestly, my greatest support has come from community. Um, my online community has been very helpful um my offline like me and the other the other women who were immediately affected have kind of gotten together and galvanized and shared um our experience and 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 really held each other up and i think that that should be for self care first of all self care requires a little some community and um we're in a space right now we're in a time in our history where we don't know how to form and how to operate in communities. So what happens is people are left isolated. And so I would say the first thing is um, try to reduce the isolation as much as possible. That will kill you more so than the threats. Mm -hmm. um, that would be my first thing. And community can do a lot. Community can go into protection. Community can um, can can look out for you. So, for example, my neighbors and I, we like my neighbor will text me if if they hear like funny noises outside, and they know I'm not at home. Even if I'm not, even if I am at home, we need to start looking out for each other in this society because this idea of individualism is not working mm. now <laughs> like to to point out or state the obvious you know you're also saying that you know your neighbors look out for you you look out for your neighbors they're texting you if they hear noises outside but but also like just to say that th that's not your neighbor saying hey we saw something mean or threatening on the internet right that that's no that's, that's for twitter that, followers but I, yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, no, but I'm Twitter, saying, but honestly, I'm saying, like that is your neighbor. Like we we've heard people uh, on this show, people in in, in public facing positions, talk about folks like going through their garbage, like their their motion cameras are triggering people, like testing their back gates, coming in their backyards. Nora, we need to have a conversation about you know, yeah, sure. I mean, you you use the phrase credible threat. And mm -hmm. for most people, uh, I would imagine you look at something and you go, that's the work of a lunatic. You know, I hate to use that language, but like, you know, this is this is not real. This is not something that's actually going to cut off your head and fuck your neck. I mean, that's just one example of one of the things I read this week. But so how do we know it's it's not credible until all of a sudden it was tragically credible. Right. Uh, OK, so I think that this is actually a very difficult conversation to have because like and, I, and, and you know, Kristen referenced my article this morning. The reality in Canada is that the people who are most threatened are not those of us who are high profile. 
You know, it's the, the people who are most threatened are the people who live in and around these individuals that threaten us. Hmm. And the the biggest example of this is Mark Lipin, who was the, the shooter at the Montreal massacre. He had a hit list. His hit list included high profile feminists and politicians and activists, and he didn't hurt any of them. He walked into a classroom full of women. Well, not full of women. He separated the women from the men and he murdered the women in this engineering classroom in 1989. Right. And so like there is a difference between the stochastic terrorism that comes through our email all the time and a threat to our physical person, because if we're receiving these kinds of violent threats from these individuals, there is a high probability that these individuals are violent in their day to day lives. And so one of the ways that I deal with this is when I receive a threat from an individual who's using their real name and you know not always the case possible i i follow up with people who are close to them so i've tracked down parents i've tracked down employers ah. i've tracked down friends and i say here's the threat that your son has given me do i need to fear for my life and in every case the person responds to say no that as you can imagine He's struggling. We're at our wits end. We don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden it gets brought, like just sucked back into the real world of who are these people that are, they are people who are struggling and they are in pain. I don't care about them in one way, as in they're telling me to go die. So I don't really care about them. But in another way, this is what, this is that, this is an unhealthy society. This is an unhealthy social fabric that 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 enables this kind of behavior and when the mother responds to me and says i don't know what to do what it, she's saying she she has no services she has no resources and so we can talk about the police not being able to do anything or restraining orders or other kind of legal mechanisms that might be able to keep us away from these people that are threatening us. And then it's different if you're a high profile activist in a small community where people know where you live, that's quite different than if you're a high profile activist, but everyone in my case, I'm in Quebec and everyone in, let's say Alberta hates me for a week. They're not coming to Quebec. They're not asking for directions on the side of the road of how to get here, right? You gotta speak French to do that. <laughs> Um, but when, when we talk about the, the, the services available to them, that's where this whole thing, that's where the rubber hits the road. There are no intervention services that are not the courts or police. There are no, uh, classes for social skills. There are no, um, forced cooking classes or forced sports activities to bring you into community with other people, to give you those relationships, to help you actually navigate things. And then worse than that, because of the way that our society treated the pandemic, we just further marginalize people who are already fringe. So this, this is the problem, yeah. right? Am I, me personally, like I, I did a talk in Edmonton just before the pandemic and I was literally receiving emails from people saying, we know where you live. We know you're away. We're waiting for you at the airport. Jeez. And it's like, no, you're not. You're, 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 you are absolutely not. Like I am, this is not affecting me. I'm, you, you know, whatever. But like, so we have to know the difference between that. And then, and then this is where our, our networks that Erica talks about, like the people that have gone through this, how do we calm, calm each other down, feel, feeling good about this, laughing some of this stuff off because they will continue and we cannot be silenced and we cannot be afraid, but we do need to be worried about the people in their immediate sphere who potentially are the ones who are going to be victims of their violence. Nora, you, 
back in April of 2018, I want to ask you about your tweet about the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. Uh, it was about 48 hours after the crash, and uh, you tweeted, I'm trying to not get cynical about what is a totally devastating tragedy, but the maleness, the youthfulness, and the whiteness of the victims are, of course, playing a significant role. Did you mm-hmm. suspect that that tweet would have the reach and the impact that it did. Can you take us back to April 8th of 2018? Well, you know what? I'll take you back to April uh, 7th of 2018, where I watched the press conference, uh, like everyone else, uh, where they were announcing what they knew about the accident. Uh, you know, I studied, um, I did my master's in Saskatoon. I, I know those roads. I also am a Canadian like everyone else. I know what it's like to be on a, on a, on a bus. I worked on tour buses between Quebec City and and uh, in Toronto, um, I was as horrified as every as everyone. Obviously, the day after, um, you know, folding laundry. It's at night. Uh, you know, day school starts the next day, and I um, am talking at the same time as the fact that at the time, I mean, there was another death after, but there was 15 victims of that accident, and at the same time in Ontario, 15 women and their children and a brother had been murdered in intimate partner violence in four months. Hmm. And I was saying, so that what you can't tell is where in my thread all that is, right? right? I was saying like, this is the same number of victims. What, what is the difference? Well, the difference. And then you read the tweet. Um, and of course, that's just one tweet. There was four. The rest are like, I, I don't want less for these folks. I didn't want you, as much for everybody did, else, right? Didn't you also mention, I, I believe at the time there was a GoFundMe for Humboldt yeah. and a GoFundMe for the... Um, the Quebec Moss shooting victims. Yes. Right. And yep. I think that was in the tweet thread too. Or, I, or it was around the same it's time. Around the same, yeah. And people were the making point the same that, point. The point that you were making and the point that, and I made the same point too, but I didn't yep. have the reach I do now, but um, is that I believe the Humboldt GoFundMe raised an obscene amount of millions an hour. Like 50 million or 50 million plus, I think. And and the Quebec Moss shooting, which had happened the year before, didn't even got less than half. When I say oh, less no. than half, oh, not even maybe like, even like, less than, It was much less than yeah, that. Yeah, it, was it was like $400,000 and it wasn't for the victims. Yeah. It was four. It was $400,000 and it was for Ahmed Derbali who yeah. uh, was the one who was paralyzed in the attack. But right? exactly. 400000 so, was for his house. But this- so I'm trying to say that that comparison, I just want to say, is a true one. It needs to be pointed out. The fact is, look at hockey now. And now what, what are we seeing? We're seeing the, the result of us um, really like mollycoddling a, a, a nation of young white boys do you know what one of the reasons why I was really grateful, Nora, that you agreed to do the show today? Because uh, I know this is tough subject matter and you never know how. I mean, there were other uh, like colleagues of ours in journalism and, and things like that, that over the over the past week and a half we've been reaching out to. And I totally respect their position. They've said, listen, we're just not really into yeah. talking about this publicly right now. They're getting so much attention about this. They'd rather not have it kind of a thing. Um, yeah. I'm grateful for you to come here and talk about it. But but one of the reasons was because and I want to bring this back is like people were furious people yeah. were like outraged about yeah. your tweet I, that's those don't even feel like adequate words fast forward to the point that erica just made when this hockey canada scandal broke i don't have to tell you this nora um people were tweeting things with no context behind them that just said like nora was right 
Mm. Nora Loretta was right. Like and, did and Jessica Allen, I want to say. Yeah, and, and Jessica, Jessica Allen, Allen yeah. on on the is it the social that I think the, the right social. Where, where she made and and that's a great point, yeah. Erica. Thank you. So so Nora, like, but at that time, like back in 2018, people were pi- like, I haven't seen something like that for a while. No. Including our premier, by the way, who piled on Nora quite extensively. Kristen, can you refresh our memories? So Jason Kenny quote tweeted uh, it and basically just sent his atta- his his entire following after her. Uh, and if, if I you recall correctly, yeah, sorry. If you go back to his Facebook page, if you go back to his Facebook page, there's thousands of replies to him making comments about me, and it's it's it's. Yeah, it's what you would expect. Yeah, Jason. That's actually called. when that's when Nora and I became friends. Huh. That's when we started talking because I reached out to her when that happened. So Nora so has my any- my question. My question to media, especially mm-hmm. Ryan, yeah, is when politicians do things like that, when they bully in like people who are less powerful than them, right? Mm-hmm. What does media say about it? Usually, media says nothing. Yeah. Right, Pierre Poilier is allowed to shake hands with a white supremacist, and everybody's like, "He should apologize." He's like, "No," and everybody's like, "Okay." Well, and then and then today there you was know, an article about and how the dude just got arrested again. Didn't there he just get arrested? About that, saying that like we're just being hysterical and this is fine and it's yeah. fine and just let Pierre Poilier do whatever he wants. Jeremy McKenzie is not just a white supremacist. Jeremy McKenzie is facing charges in two separate provinces, criminal charges, and his and Pierre Polly's public spokesman is like, oh well, not a big deal. Like yeah. I and when we allow these things, and of course Pierre Polly is part of a permission structure around attacking media, and he's that's part of his jam. So of course he's not gonna apologize because that's who he wants to vote for him are yeah. the people who don't believe that the quote-unquote mainstream media um, is telling people the truth. It's the same thing as this, This, sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swear, I apologize. This fucking guy <laughs> today who's tweeting about how he went to oh, Ottawa police about Rachel guy. Gilmore's threats and- um, I wasn't going to bring him up, Rayworth. I, I wasn't going to bring that idiot up. You're talking about Mark Patron, right? Yeah. Yeah, but this is but the problem is is that he is just a symptom of the bigger issue in that a, in that what he's saying. If you look at the comments, it's filled with people who agree with him. Oh yeah, she's lying because the police aren't disclosing her investigation to you. Like, but this they will look for anything and any reason not to believe us. If we don't post our threats, then we're lying. If we do, we're playing the victim. Like we cannot win. Yeah, that's the misogyny. Let's go back. Let's let's go back to 2018 because it's it's. I think it's really instructive. Like the way things today are different than they were then, um, is 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 important to point out. And like you know, Ryan, you asked like, did I know that it was going to go as far as it went? And you know, it and it and it and it didn't in the first 24 hours, right? I was I it was it was Sunday night. By Monday night, I came home after a soccer game. It's about midnight, and someone uh, who's a, a a prominent Tory troll, like he's not a politician, but he's he's a, he's a Tory troll. He texted me. He's like, um, "So is, how's it feel going viral?" Mm. I'm like, "What are you talking about going viral? I mean, maybe 20 people have responded to that tweet, maybe." And he's like, "Watch out!" And then the next day, the editor in chief of the Toronto Sun has an editorial about me. I'm in the dentist chair and my phone is exploding. Like my dentist was like, is there an emergency you have to deal with? I'm like, no, I go for lunch with a journalist who's covering the trial of Alexandre Bissonnette. 
and I'm the most hated Canadian in, 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 in at the moment. Jeez. And it's not decent. You know, yeah. it was just so bizarre. And so to see actually like worse than media not getting it right or not covering it, media were implicated directly and in respect or out of respect for the families who I never targeted. Of course, I never hashtagged it. This was nothing I was ever saying to them. Uh, out of respect for them, I refused to do media for a week because I didn't want to be the story. I didn't want it to go any further. And I was already in this kind of hellstorm. I started to do media uh, a, a week after that, but there was no media. No one was interested in asking what happened. Uh, I was talking to one tech uh, expert and he says, has anyone asked for your Twitter logs? Because you can literally see the waves of, 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 of harassment. This was not organic. It was all pushed through different kinds of channels, mm -hmm. like, you know, through whatever message boards. I was like, nope, no one's ever asked to see the chat logs. No one's ever asked to do a, to do a D um, to a postmortem on what happened to me and not to make it about me, but to just be like, this was like, they literally tried to push me into suicide. That's what the point was. They messaged my grandmother. They messaged every single person with my last name in this country who sadly is related to me. Uh, I was, they were hoping that I would have family members like really trying to convince me to whatever back down or apologize, or I'm not sure what. And, um, and when it was all over, it was as if it never happened. My career's totally in tatters. My name is totally mud. I do presentations and, you know, I'm in, I'm in Regina and people are like, whoa, were, were you scared to come out here? And it's like, no, why would I be scared to come back to Saskatchewan? That's really ridiculous. But there was never any attempt to understand what happened. And so then it happens again and it happens again and it happens again and it becomes more sophisticated and they know that it works, right? McLean's publicly blacklisted me over it and never apologized, never explain what happened. So, you know, media is very, very implicated in this because if it's something that is touchy, like white supremacy and hockey in Canada, they're not gonna, they don't wanna touch that with a 10 foot pole. Like they no don't way. even wanna well, touch no, race. And they, <laughs> right? but they, also, they, they love to like, they don't, they love the story, right? Cause even when I went by, like when the thing with Kent Hare happened, yeah. nobody in media asked me if it was okay to use a picture of my fucking four-year-old niece as the picture that was on the national that was on cbc all over the place that was in the globe and mail like it was me and my four-year-old niece nobody asked permission for that Kristen, and... for, the, for the audience members that aren't familiar with that story you're talking about the elevator story i'm assuming can can you yeah. just do no, you mind so like in came... two sentences bringing us up to speed yeah so i mean i came forward in 2017 around um issues around sexual harassment with uh then mp kent hare my uh my accusations were found were, were found founded by an independent investigation and he stepped down from cabinet. Um, but my life exploded in much the same way Nora is. Like, I remember going to bed and thinking like, I've just expressed my opinion. Like, I didn't really think what was gonna happen. And then my life just imploded. I was everywhere. My name was everywhere. My parents got called, my grandparents got called. I got death threats, I got rape threats. I got a lot of dick pics, which is a weird thing for people to do in that context, but that happened quite a bit. Um, but media also was deeply disrespectful to me and to my family in the way that they chose to handle it. And that that will always kind of sit with me poorly because of the fact that it ended up targeting my family way more than it should have. And nobody actually, well, one person, one one journalist, but most people didn't actually even come to me and talk to me about the, the human impact of what that does to you. Do you want to give credit get... to the one person that did? Emma Graney. Emma Graney, rock star. Um, but, mm -hmm. but, and I include myself in this though, uh, media has been ill-equipped 
to tell stories. Like I remember even, you know what, like one of the, you know, the uh, Grand Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations, one of the most incredible things that they did, and this might seem like an obvious thing now, maybe, I don't know, but their comms team um, ahead of and then in the early stages of the papal visit and the Pope's apology at Masquachis and obviously his, his recent tour across the country, um, the, uh, the comms team at the Grand Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations reached out to reporters, I know because I was one of them, that got and, and they sent out like a two-page briefing on how to conduct interviews like that, that are potentially triggering interviews, how to conduct interviews that could re-traumatize uh, what we might call newsmakers or spokespersons. It was like it was like a it was like a, a bullet point type list of things to consider as you're covering a story. I mean, capitalize con- indigenous and capitalize. <laughs> yeah, for starters. I mean, but is that Erica? Is that a reference to Alberta's premier's tweet this morning? Uh, he did it this morning in a tweet. What there did was he a, do? a church. Did you hear about that? Oh, here we go, Rayworth. Uh, so he, so Jason, so a, a church burned down last night in Fort Chippewan. Uh, Fort Chippewan is a is a, is a community in northern Alberta. Uh, we've talked a lot about it on the show. It's a community that's here's a bit of context. I might get off track here, but I'll bring it back. I promise. Um, cancer rates in Fort Chippewan, in particular in the First Nations, uh, are off the charts. And Fort mm. Chippewan happens to be downstream from a lot of oil and gas activity. Mm. And uh, happens to be. Happens to be. And their chief, Alan Adam, who has, in my mind, if I can say one of the most remarkable interviews we've ever had on Real Talk, I'm surprised it doesn't have three million downloads. Alan Adam came on here and threw bombs at the provincial and federal government saying they know about our cancer rates. They know about our people being poisoned. They do nothing about it. They're in the hand of industry. And he, Alan Adam, and, and you may remember Chief Alan Adam was also the guy who, if I can put it candidly, got his ass kicked by RCMP outside the casino in Fort McMurray. Everybody remember oh, that? Is this yeah, all starting? Hey, this is all starting. This is all starting to make sense. Yes, and so there it's are all coming together. So there yeah. are major tensions in Fort Chippewan uh, with the indigenous population around that area. And of course, in you know the, the recent climate, uh, our understanding these revelations, or let me call them reminders about residential schools and the relationship that the church had there. And so here's the background. Okay, so last night, uh, a 100 year old Catholic church burns to the ground in Fort Chippewan, and this morning, Alberta's premier tweets. I don't have it in front of me, but something like, you know, it's a shame to see another arson, by the way, not confirmed, another arson, he says, at a church that's very important to the small eye indigenous people of the region. And <gasps> critics of the tweet are rightfully saying, why are you invoking the indigenous people in this? The police, the literally, the church is still smoldering. Like fire investigators can't even get in there yet. Like, what do you mean arson? What do you mean indigenous? Like, it just this doesn't. Is, but this is. This is just sorry. I'm sorry to completely interrupt you. No, I'm done. This is exactly the kind of dog whistle bullshit that the right have done ever since the uh, Kelowna, the discovery in Kelowna of the unmarked graves. Yeah. Do you remember like they went on and on and on about a couple of churches that burned down? And yes, it is terrible that people burn down churches. That is bad when churches burn down, but it is distracting from the broader issue, which is around residential schools and the indigenous communities experience in Alberta and, and, and across the country. But they love to focus on this. And of course, Kenny did that. Of course he did. That seems very typical for him, but it is disrespectful. First of all, to not capitalize indigenous. That's not a difficult thing to do. And secondly, to, to, to assume that it's a crime before you know anything, but he's only doing that because it involves a Catholic church. 
If it didn't, he would not have tweeted that. And if if we were tweeting something about a crime, assuming a crime against an Indigenous person, I don't think that that would be the same response from the Premier. Mm. No, it would be minimized. And exactly. It, the dog whistle politics that have that have wafted through this country for the last, I would say, at least five or six years in this iteration of it yep. um, uh, has been ignored by media. And because of that ignorance, these not only does Jason Kenney get to say whatever the hell he wants to, for example, that somehow COVID is being spread by people in Northeast Calgary who happen to be brown or, you know, South Asian descent is another story. Nobody says anything. Other media outlets have a tendency to believe authority over anything right they do not challenge power and they do not challenge authority and that is a problem because what jason kenny has been able to do is build up daniel smith and there is a through line between pierre poiliev's um handshake with jeremy mckenzie and our hate there is a through line there absolutely so don't think that things aren't going to get worse. They're going to get a lot worse. And the fact is, now we have an issue of democracy. So all these people who like to tell us about liberal democratic ideals and love to tell us about something and who tell us that now is not the right time. You know who else used to say now is not the right time? The white moderates that Martin Luther King wrote about in a letter to Birmingham jail. You know, he says the same thing. We're at crunch time right now. Our democracy is in peril. And if you call me hysteric, I will call you a misogynist. Mm. Okay? Because it's true. And all we're getting is little tepid responses from the prime minister. Why doesn't the prime minister reach out and meet with us? Because he benefits from... Pierre Pauly ever being, and I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna pretend that that guy's French, right? Okay, I just heard this story. Okay, Nora, I just heard this story about how he changed his name to make it sound more French. You heard it on Real Talk. No, I heard it in the gym this morning. Well, that's why everyone's talking about it. We broke it because my brother went to high school with him. And my brother, oh, really? yeah, my brother, I, yeah, he did, no, he didn't okay. go by Pierre. He was, he's Pierre in the yearbook. Uh, but he was their class historian. He goes, he never went by Pierre. So anyway, I, it doesn't matter. What was he, Peter? No, I can't. And Peter I'm drawing. Polliver. I'm drawing a blank. No, it's like, like Peter Poliver. No, it was like it was like no, it's like I don't remember what it was. Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. Jeff. Jeff Poliev. That's who he was at Henry Actually, Wise. You know what? Henry Wisewood High School point. in 1995, like class of 1997. Henry Wisewood Calgary Elbow Drive. Jeff Poliev. Anyway, who cares? But, yes. <laughs> but let me, hey, let me, so let me circle back on a couple of things. And, and, and by the way, we've already taken you 15 minutes past what we asked you to do. I hope you don't have anywhere to be, but I, but I want to give us a chance to wrap this in good fashion. This always happens with us, Ryan. Well, and I'm never going to apologize for it. I Neither hope, you know, because like what? Like, sorry, we were, we were just, sorry. Anything. Yeah, we That's were just, right. I don't apologize for shit. We were just unless having, I'm wrong. <laughs> unless I'm wrong, I do apologize. No, I don't. I just say I'm wrong. Yeah, okay, you, just, you can acknowledge you're wrong. Um, here's yeah. a couple things. I, I wanted to take a few boxes. 
boxes here. Johnny, can you load me the photo of the, the banner that was hanging off the overpass? Because I want to bring this conversation back. Oh, my um, gosh. That took me down this, Telegram. The, the 14 words thing. Um, but first of all, my conversation with Chief Alan Adam was back on April 28th of 2021. If anybody wants to okay. check it out, you can check it out on our YouTube archive. You can find it on our podcast archive there. It is April 28th, 2021. Chief Alan Adam talking about cancer rates in Fort Chippewan. It is a must listen. The other thing I wanted to mention and circle back on is I don't know if we shone enough attention on this. Mark Patrone is the radio host that we're talking about here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is he not a former CRTC commissioner? I'm pretty sure. Uh, he says, I inquired about the reports of threats made against Rachel Gilmore. He says, per this uh, response from the Ottawa police, good morning, Mark. The Ottawa police can't confirm nor deny an active investigation about a named person unless charges are laid. And then he leaves it there. Now, any reasonable person uh, with a junior high school education, let alone somebody that has a talk show would know that police will never comment on an investigation ever. No. That is not mm -hmm. that is not police protocol. I mean, I've been yeah. asking, you know, I've been asking the RCMP for comments on the update of the investigation into the 2017 UCP leadership race for years now. And every time they write me back because I'm looking for the scoop and I want the exclusive, they write me back and say, Ryan, as you know, and per our previous replies, we cannot comment on active investigation. Like, so I don't know what Mark's trying to do. Well, we all know what Mark's trying to do here. He's obsessed with Rachel because that's what this is about, is so many of these people who literally probably never seen a woman naked in their entire lives obsess about Rachel, and they have made her their the focus of so much of their hate and so much of the way that they speak. Like, the things that she gets, we all get really bad stuff, but some of the stuff around her is just absolutely deranged. And, you know, I mean, she we have a we had a conversation as a group the other day and like basically she's being told like oh well you know maybe you should you should carry an umbrella around with you so that you can protect yourself from bear spray that was like the big advice that yeah but she Kristen got from do you want to hear like when I was 20 on campus the only piece of advice that I got after receiving a credible we know where you live and we're going to murder you death threat was to get practice running taking off my shoe while I'm running and smashing a window. That's helpful. That's great. That sounds about right. Um, this was a, uh, I want, I want to sort of bring us to a point where I'd love to just have the three of you have a chance to, to, to just sort of, you know, we don't want to leave anything on the table here, call them closing remarks or what you will, but this is just a reminder to me of what we're dealing with and how the threat is real. Uh, this is a reminder to me that expressions of white supremacy and sexism, um, uh, expressions of hatred towards certain religious communities or gender minority communities, what have you. This is in Calgary. This is a banner that was hung over McLeod Trail, which is a popular north to south thoroughfare in Calgary. Oh, McLeod Trail. Yeah, what? you know what I'm talking about, Erica. <laughs> McLeod Trail, home of Fuddruckers and Earl's Willow Park and all the great, you know, Toys are all the great. Yeah. By the way, I was just telling my friends the other day, we all agreed that we're like, why is there an Earl's out here? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't like, get me started. Don't, don't get Earls, me started. Nora's, shake, Nora's shaking her head. Can you Listen. Just, Earls just sponsor your podcast, Erica? Is that what this is? <laughs> hey, Earl's. Earl's bad yeah. Earl's bad and <laughs> Earl's bad and that sounds like a that sounds like their martini happy hour. You could have the Earl's bad and bitchy, Erica. That would be a, totally. that would be incredible. Pomegranate. Yeah. But hey, let me get serious for a second. Mm. This is this is this is a banner that was hung on McLeod Trail. It's the so-called yeah. 14 words. We must secure the existence of our race and a future for white children. There it is, hanging in daylight, in plain sight for everybody to see. Erica, what's our perspective check here as we head into the weekend? 
Okay, so I saw this online and then I saw that it was hung by like White Lives Matter. And then I went to Telegram and then I found their page and then I went down the rabbit hole and it's not pretty. It's not pretty. They have a whole manifesto. They have, it's, it's wild. It is wild. And the thing is, I think I didn't realize how much children are being radicalized mm. and yesterday i'm gonna i'm gonna close with this story yesterday i think i posted on facebook yeah i still have a facebook account um that my response to justin trudeau uh for his tepid banal generic i don't care tweet right um and i basically said you didn't even mention that it was female journalists or female journalists of color you didn't mention anything about the type of threats we're getting like this is a day late and a dollar short right and this kid came this kid that i know i've known for years his mother and i used to be friends and he comes in and bleh, about journalists like the same kind of 8chan 4chan stuff yeah and this kid used i four years ago was a nice kid he was a lovely child he was giving, he was empathetic, he was compassionate, and now he's full of anger. And that, and this is a kid who didn't know me as a journalist, so I don't even know where he got this from. But the point is that white children are being radicalized at an alarming rate, and their parents have no clue. None. Okay, Kristen, that's what I'll leave you with. Yeah, and that's something significant uh and that's i just want to kind of like sit there with that for a second i appreciate that erica Kristen, mm -hmm. give us something to walk with this weekend well i'll say that like so all three of us are friends we know each other we talk up we talk offline obviously um and so we all have very dark senses of humor when it comes to this because that's the way that we've processed it okay so i think if you're listening to this uh podcast and you don't know us that you probably think that we're not, we've never felt afraid or that we don't, that this hasn't emotionally impacted us in the way that we are framing it. Um, again, because we're so comfortable with each other and we're comfortable with you. And it's just who we are. Like we're, we're tough people and this is how we deal with things. But I will tell you that this has been deeply impactful on myself and on a lot of us because it is scary. There is nothing that will ever prepare you for the first, the second, or the 50th death threat. There is nothing that will prepare you for getting a rape threat. And there is absolutely nothing that prepares you for having to tell the people that love you in your life, your parents, your friends, your family, whoever, that this is happening and that they could also be at risk. And for me, when, when this happened the, this last time, um, my boss, thankfully, uh, has been very, very, very vocal. Erica loves him. Very vocal in his support of us. Um, and then he got a threat. So I feel directly responsible for the fact that my boss got a death threat because of me. And so I want to clarify for a lot of people that this is really shitty. And we joke about it and we laugh about it because that's the way that all of us have learned how to deal with it. But it doesn't make it less horrific every single time that it happens. I appreciate that. 
can I just go on the record just so it's on the record of this transcript of this show? We don't do transcripts, by the way. Um, <laughs> and just just say, like, I, for one, don't think that you should uh, feel even one percent responsible for any sort of death threat that your employer receives. But I digress. I understand it would be troubling, obviously. And when a threat is made against a politician, the threat is made against the politician's office in so many ways as when a threat is made against a journalist that works at yeah. a television or radio station or a newspaper. The threat is made against their colleagues as well. Uh, Nora, you want to take us home on this? Yeah, um, I guess like for me, the most important thing is understanding this as being deeply networked into the, the the world that we have created and the world that we all exist in right now. There is a connection between uh, the affordability crisis and rent prices yes. and, and mortgages and food insecurity and student debt crises and healthcare system collapse and these threats. And this is, I think, what I am most frustrated by. I mean, Ryan, this is like the most mainstream interview I've ever done talking about my threats. Really? Ever. Wow. Yeah. I mean, other than other than one that got cut down to two minutes at CBC because Bill Morneau decided to say that he'd be on the air. Mm. Uh, <laughs> honest to God. Um, mm -hmm. And then I did a, I did one radio show in 2019. No, like, there, like there, there's no appetite to have a conversation that is deeper than uh, here's a horrible threat that Erica got. Uh, this is how Eric is dealing with it. Mm. That is the depth of what we can, of what we can expect within mainstream media. And hearing Erica's story about um, about children being radicalized and knowing uh, knowing Kristen uh, how much this impacts those of us, as like she was saying, those of us that get these threats, um, we cannot waste any more time talking about the real issues here. And every single time a story in the media. Uh, talks about inflation and doesn't talk about the record high price, uh, profits that people are making. Every single time we're talking about a, 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 a shortage of workers and doesn't talk about job security and doesn't talk about paid sick days and doesn't talk about wages that are absolutely poverty level, uh, they are making things worse. And the people that are in the, on, the, on the direct receiving line of this are the people living in homeless encampments, are the people experiencing violence uh, because they are unhoused, the people that are being pushed out of where they are living, the people who are giving up uh, food to be able to pay for rent, people that are giving up cars to be able to get to work on buses. I mean, th this is this is a giant, giant, giant problem. And we will not deal with it unless we start injecting services into the population that can help reach people from the abyss. Because in our isolation, thanks to this pandemic, the internet has completely obliterated so many people's minds. And all of us know people in our personal lives. And we've seen this. I mean, Erica talking about some kid that only knew Erica as a friend and not and now now she's this like member of the machine. A, a guy in my, my partner's band who he's known for 30 years came out with us incredibly racist stuff around Black Lives Matter. And me saying, Mark, you know me and my closest friends founded Black Lives Matter. Like, what about our relationship and then my relationship with other people mm -hmm. is now turned into China is creating the United Nations to control a Marxist plot through Black Lives Matter, right? So we know people have fallen through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And we personally, I mean, we can do what we can. We can talk with them. We can, we can try and give them services. We can try and help. We can try and not cut them out of our lives. Sometimes that's impossible because they're too toxic. But we can't do this on ourselves. We can't will this stuff better. This is this lands directly in the lap of Jason Kenney. It, it lands directly in the lap of Justin Trudeau. Yep. It lands directly in the yep. lap of municipal yep. councillors and, and mayors. And I will say that we we were quicker to have any kind of approach to Islamophobic Islamic extremism than we've ever been to white supremacy extremism and yes. to what is happening in this. 
and the government doesn't want to address it. And as, as such, we are leaving this, this group of primarily young white men alone in this world with, with basically living in an echo chamber that is making them more and more and more extremist every single day. Yeah, and, and sorry, Nora, let me add the, um, the, an economic point to what you're saying, okay? Um, so the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen economic um, policies that have created more income inequality, more wealth inequality. It has, it has taken away the social safety net for those most marginalized. Sick days shouldn't even be a question especially after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And here is what I am afraid of. This affordability crisis is going to make radicalization easier. The other thing too, is that if the liberals decide to do an austerity-esque budget, I'm going to lose it. And the reason is that will make this worse. And every time that we get into a situation of economic uncomfortableness like this, the liberals can't speak to those people. And this is the problem. And I know, Ryan, we're going way over what we're supposed to do. Hey, let me let me let me say and then I'll remind you about economic discomfort. I promise to to get us back on track. But I just want to say I dropped into our live chat for like two seconds. T.S. says, uh, make sure you hit the like button, everybody. These are important conversations. We need the algorithm to take this. And T.S. is absolutely right. Share this like this. Tell people about this conversation. Nora says this is the most mainstream it's ever been we're not mainstream we're trying like hell to be exactly we want to draw those numbers but that's up to you our real talk audience members to share this but here's the one i wanted to read emma says i want more of these deeper conversations please and thank you and I'll tell you this, having been in terrestrial radio and morning television before that, Nora, I mean, I made my career for 12 years on three-minute interviews. It's terrible. It's brutal. We were supposed to wrap here at 11.30 Eastern. It's now coming up on noon Eastern. It's almost 10 Mount. We're a half hour overtime, and you know what? It doesn't matter. That is the beauty of this format. That is the beauty of podcasts is that we can talk this stuff out. Rayworth, economic discomfort. Well, people like when people wonder why Trump won, he won because he spoke to people who felt that they were not being seen and who were losing their jobs and who were not seeing the benefit of globalism and the benefit of all these other things. Hillary Clinton wasn't. That's why Trump won. That is really the main reason. And what people are dismissing about Pierre Polyev at their peril is that that's exactly what he's doing, too. And Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland, every time that you talk about this issue, they're like, well, our debt to GDP ratio is no one gives a fuck about that. They care about being able to pay their bills and being able to pay their groceries. And there is a reason why conservatives and the way that they're able to approach this from a very like populist angle win. Mm-hmm. And all these people, I see it on Twitter all the time. Oh, Pierre Polly doesn't have a shot of winning. Yes, he does. He has a very, he, oh, yeah. I, I would bet the very little money that I have in my bank account right now, that Pierre Polyev will likely win the 2025 election. Ooh, because no, that's not possible. I don't think that's we can happening. Talk about that. There's he'll, other he'll reasons the leadership, for that, but I don't, but think, he's gonna be, how, I don't think he's going to be. Not because of how extreme he is, but that's... Yeah. No, but I do think he has a very good shot of it. Yep. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say all my money because I need it for... We'll food. put it put it um, this way, Kristen, is like yeah, the, the last thing cost. that people should do is underestimate him. Um, no, but, they shouldn't but, underestimate him. But he's like got a... underestimated Trump. 
he, uh, totally. And and he's got a tough row. If you if you consider like Aaron O'Toole, and I had this conversation earlier. I mean, with Andrew Coyne earlier this week. Uh, you know, it's it's like Aaron O'Toole kind of swung to the right to win the leadership, and then he tried to bring it back to the middle, and 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 had a tough time doing it. You you can imagine the miles that Poliev would have to walk in James Top's boots yeah, to Aaron go from O'Toole- how far right he went to bring it back to the middle to win a mainstream general election. It- I don't know. But the biggest the, the biggest barrier to to Paulie ever being prime minister is is Doug Ford, right? Mm. Until Ontario goes liberal again, the federal government's going to be going to be liberal. That's that's what history shows us, and that'll be my completely game game theory kind of take on on how politics works in this country. But there's not enough space for a conservative in on in, in in Ottawa and a conservative in Toronto, just because that's like literally historically that never happens. So it's all Doug Ford's fault. So it's all Doug Ford's fault. I want to just bring it back, like, like on this question of like, what do you do? So I'll, I'll share a story um, that'll, that'll tie all this stuff together. There's a, there was a guy in Hamilton um, who for like a year has been randomly sending me messages and they're classic um, manic, drunk, middle of the night railing on me for something I've said, not violent, but very, very weird and unsettling. And it's an individual who I can tell is real, like using the real email address or whatever. And over the, over the last year, I respond and say, like, I don't, I don't really know what your deal is. Like, I don't know why I make you so angry. And then he would apologize. Oh, I was so drunk. I was blackout drunk. I'm really sorry. This kind of thing. This, this goes on every two months, uh, for a year. And then he starts emailing all of these journalists, me included, about him basically breaking with reality. And so from the last two months, we all read these. Well, I mean, we couldn't. There's too many emails. We're receiving emails like just all the time, all the time, all the time. And it culminates in him murdering his father and telling us about it in these emails. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You talked about this in your piece. Yeah. And it's like we saw the cries for help. We saw the cries for help. It was clear. This guy, this guy needs help. And he's tried to get help. And I emailed him in the initial flurry. So after maybe 30 emails, I was like, hey, I know this is a cry for help. I have no idea what I could do to help you, but please let me know. And he said, no, Nora, it's totally fine. I just want to make sure that if I'm murdered, they know that I was murdered. Like, again, break from reality stuff. And you look at this situation, and this is someone who tried to get help who has deep, deep, deep trauma. He was talking about all of the trauma um, related to his father and in general in all of these emails. And there's literally no option. There's nothing. Can't get a psychiatrist. You're not going to go to a mental health emergency. Uh, you know, don't, don't want to get the police involved. There is nothing. And so if at the most extreme manifestation of what we experienced with this, uh, this these harassment uh, online, we literally have nothing to address it, then we're fucked. You can read Nora's piece uh, out just right now. The problem with our conversation on harassment of journalists. It's on Passage. You can get it at readpassage.com. Nora Loretto is co-host of the Sandy and Nora Talk Politics podcast, and she's the author of the brand new book, Spin Doctors. Uh, You can learn more about it on her website, noraloretto.ca. Kristen Rayworth is a political staffer, a sexual violence survivor, and an advocate. Erica, I feel an economist, the founder of Not In My Color, And, of course, the host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. Make sure you subscribe to those podcasts. Show them some love. And thank you for being a part of this conversation. To the three of you, I can't communicate my gratitude adequately for this extended length discussion that just has been begging to be had. Thank you for this. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks thank for making you. space for it. Real Talkers, thank you in advance for sharing this episode. Every Friday, we present the Real Talk Roundtable on issues that directly impact our listening audience across Western Canada and across the country. You can send us your thoughts anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I want to apologize. Uh, neither Chantel, the crane operator, nor Chris uh, knew that their emails were going to get read today. They're both phenomenal. Chris wants to talk about my conversation with uh, gun lobbyist Rod Giltaka yesterday. Chris's email is amazing. And Chantel tells us that she listens to Real Talk from her crane uh, on the job. Uh, she talks about her experience growing up uh, as a survivor of harassment, as a survivor of sexual abuse. She talks about misogyny in the workplace. It's powerful stuff. I'm going to get to both of these emails on Monday. You have my word. This conversation went quite a bit longer than we expected, which we will never apologize for. John, the beautiful thing about this format, as mentioned, we don't have news, traffic, and weather every 11 minutes on the wheel. We no. don't have to break for the sports no. show that's coming up after us. We can talk we we for want. as long as we need, as long as these conversations are resonating not just with the guests we have three remarkable people that today was, that was fire but that the audience interview. is on this as well and, yeah. and 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 audience like real talkers you telling us like you may think that this is a small thing but for example like you know i'll read a bit of it like chris's email when he writes in and he says you know i listen to real talk uh, he says i, I want to thank you he says your show makes my drive to work a little more thought-provoking you know how much that means to us that drives us and when and when you have people on our live chat say keep this going keep it going longer at, yeah. you know su supply your own questions to our hashtag you make the show stronger you make our understanding of of the significance of issues more deep uh, because of your perspectives, and we thank you for that. We say that we have, and, and this is when we pitch, like when we pitch the prime minister, we've got some big asks right now. We're always trying to bring in the big names, and we also want to bring in the people. You have no idea who the hell they are. Who the hell they are. You've Even never Jeff heard their Pollier. names before. Even him. Jeff Poliev. We've been trying to get him on. We have been trying to get him on the show. I don't know why they're not responding to us. But we say to him, we say this is sure, one of the most downloaded news talk podcasts in the country, we say, but this is bar none. The most engaged podcast audience in the nation. You know, don't take it from me. David Hurley said the same thing, host of the Hurley Burley. I love it. It's because uh, we're here every day thanks to the support of our great sponsors. That conversation is brought to you by our friends at Eden Landscaping, a custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. It's not too late to bring your outdoor space to life. We're getting late into the season, into August, but if you've got maybe a quick excavation, you know what I'm thinking, Johnny, in particular, maybe people want to run a natural gas line out to their garage to get that heater in there on the thermostat before winter hits, you're going to want to contact Mike and his team today. They do it all. Retaining walls, design, outdoor kitchens, planter boxes, whatever you need, they can do it at Eden Landscaping. At Sherwood Dodge and St. Albert Dodge, they've got Ram Power Days going on right now. You can get 0% financing for 60 months on approved credit, plus up to $6,750 in total discounts. That's more than ten grand off the price of a brand new Ram that is Canada's best-selling truck, back-to-back-to-back -back -back Motor Trend Truck of the Year. That is across the country, the best selection of Ram Dodge, the Jeep lineup as well at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website. And our friends at Kubi Energy want to remind you, when you go to kubienergy.ca, the first thing you're going to see is a pop-up that asks you if you want a free solar quote. Now, why does it make sense to do it today? Because of this Greener Homes grant. The federal government has it. You can read about it on Kubi's blog. It's a $40,000 interest-free loan to get solar panels up on your roof. 
interest-free. Plus, solar now, more affordable, more effective, efficient, that is, in its straw than it ever has been before. I mean, the technology is astounding year over year, let alone five years ago when maybe you last entertained the idea. KubiEnergy.ca, you can learn more about this $40,000 interest-free loan. And this weekend... Say hey if you're going to be grabbing a DQ Blizzard from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We love giving shouts out to our good friends, the family-owned Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. If you follow me on Instagram, you know a short time ago, less than a month ago, we trusted them with my son Wyatt's birthday cake, Johnny. They did the Dairy Queen birthday cake, the classic ice cream cake with the Minions theme. It was a huge hit. A huge hit. I connected with one of Wyatt's young friends. He's just six years old. He looked at me and he said, I only like the chocolate cookie crumb middle. I said, you and me, pal, we'll (laughs) stick together. We'll crush that cookie crumb middle. Next time you're ordering an ice cream cake, do it from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We wrap our broadcast week every week, courtesy of our friends at Local Environmental Services. They love keeping it local at localenvironmental.ca. An opportunity to blow off a little steam. We ask for your submissions through the week every week to talk at ryanjesperson.com. What you're about to hear are three emails from real talkers. It's a tradition we call Trash Talk. All right, this one from Merrick, who says we need to stop talking about Quebec when discussing building pipelines to the East Coast. He says, please, for the love of God, invite somebody onto the show with legitimate credentials to talk about an alternative location for a liquid natural gas port. It's Thunder Bay, he says. Why is this not a viable site? TC Energy already has pipelines running through northern Ontario since the 60s. It continues to make my brain hurt that nobody ever mentions it. That from Merrick, the red-headed prick. That's his nickname. I didn't give it to him. How about this one from Cameron, who says, Ryan, in follow-up to your conversation about Canada's gun laws yesterday with Rod Giltaka, why should we as Canadians believe that the flow of guns could not happen into our country? I strongly believe American gun laws have stained the Canadian ground with Canadian blood. Their lack of gun control and access to military-style weapons has created control and access to illegal firearms on a level that no Canadian gun law could possibly address, let alone stop. Justin Trudeau needs to tell Joe Biden that murdered Canadians' blood is on his hands as well. That from Cameron. And we'll wrap today with this one from Ty, who says, real talkers, Ty here, just one of those severely normal types, the ones that the politicians always talk about, not particularly loud, nor opinionated, abrasive, controversial, nor combative, but a guy who's seen enough around him to step up and write into the show for the first time. To all those who would demean, disrespect, harass, or threaten women or others working in journalism. To all those who would compare vaccines to the Holocaust. To all those who would hang banners celebrating white supremacy off our overpasses. And to all those who would attempt to drag us down to a dark, scummy depth where some people can't feel safe simply being who they are. I've had enough and I can't be alone, and I'm going to start speaking up more often, you will not set the terms of our society. Us kind, empathetic, decent ones will. You've been served! That from Ty. I love that one. What a perfect wrap to the week. 
Thanks so much for being a part of this show. Thank you for subscribing on YouTube and on our podcast platforms. Thanks for rating and reviewing the show. Thanks for signing up for our email newsletter, our Sunday message, right at the bottom of the page at ryanjesperson.com. And thanks for showing our guests, our fellow audience members, and our sponsors some love whenever you can. Coming up on Monday, those audience emails will, of course, check in with the Titan of Talk, Charles Adler, and more. Make it a great weekend, Real Talkers. We'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 